Welcome to The Conversation. I'm Benjamin Dixon, host of The Benjamin Dixon Show. Joining us this afternoon is Tara L. Samples. She is a former candidate for lieutenant governor of Ohio, and she is a councilwoman. Joining us now to discuss many things, including the campaign of Senator Nina Turner for Congress. Tara, thank you so much for joining us. How are you today? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me, Benjamin. I appreciate it. The pleasure is ours. Could you tell us about, um, before we get to Senator Turner's campaign, tell us about your campaign and the various things that you're working on. Well, yes, um, currently I am a sitting council member here in the city of Akron. I represent uh, Ward 5. We call the Mighty Ward 5 here in Akron, Ohio. Uh, My ward is the biggest ward in the city of Akron. I represent probably 96% of the African-American community. Um, We are working on some great projects here in the city of Akron. Uh, Right now, we just passed um, legislation um, allowing um, individuals to come into a towing district that was predominantly held by men. So we were able to get a woman into the district. So that was a big uh, thing for us here in the city of Akron because it's a district that has been held down by uh, certain companies for over 50 years. So that was a big thing for us. We're also working on some uh, some gun legislation here as well and putting some ring cameras in the community to help mm-hmm. combat some of the gun violence that we are seeing uh, at, here in the city of Akron. We've had 15 homicides since the beginning of the year. Mm. And I, I'm looking at, like, I, I followed you for some time on social media and I've seen your progressive activism and your passion for the people. Could you speak about that particularly as it pertains to your work as a council member? Oh, absolutely. Um, You know, I I just believe that we are supposed to be in these spaces and places for one particular reason, and that is for the people. Mm. Um, I I hold true to that. Um, If it isn't about helping people, I don't want any parts of it. And that's just, I think this is what we all should do. I think a lot of us come into this space uh, with that concept in mind, but somewhere along the line, a lot of those individuals lose that focus. And I always remain there in that space. And I've always made a promise to myself that when it it is not about the people, it is time for me to move on. And I I think we all need to stay there. Um, When you are elected to office, you are elected because of people. And they send you there to represent them. And once you stop feeling like you should represent them, it's time to move on. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, You are a part in working with Senator Nita Turner, who is, um, I'm a fan of her work and a supporter of her work because of the passion and the fire with which she speaks and the conviction that she carries her life. Tell us about the campaign that's in the election that's coming up on, I believe it's November 2nd. August the 3rd is the special election, is a primary. So we do have an official uh, special primary election date, which is August 3rd. Uh, and then the general will be in November. So okay. uh, we are off and running. I am um, working on uh, Senator Turner's campaign as political director. Uh, she has continued to speak truth to power, not just yeah. in the 11th congressional district, but across the country. And she is a voice that is much needed in Congress um, yeah. to help amplify the voices in the progressive movement that are always that are already there. Um, I think that. Uh, Nina brings something unique to uh, the congressional race. She is someone who is battle tested. Yeah. She is well versed on the issues. Um, and she's going to be able to reach across the aisle and have those conversations uh, that I believe a lot of the other ones aren't able to have. And I think that if we're talking about 
we uh, we want to uh, repair the Democratic Party, you have to be willing to allow those progressive voices within that structure. And that's where Senator Turner comes in. No, no, absolutely. And, and it's not only the fire with which she speaks and the conviction, but it's also, um, dare I say, the sincerity of of what she fights for um, that pulls me towards her campaign. Um, could you speak about the endorsement that she recently got from uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, which is a major endorsement, but also just a, a sign of the change in this country and moving this country a little bit more towards progressivism? Absolutely. And, and the endorsement um, of uh, AOC was huge, and it is huge for this movement. Um, and it shows that people are ready for change. They are hunger, hungry for change. And when you have someone with such a magnetic voice as AOC coming into uh, this race, which she didn't have to, but she sees something there that's going to be very beneficial to uh, Congress and to the progressive movement. And I think because of the fire that Senator Turner brings to the conversation, whether it's for Medicare for All, uh, Fight for 15, um, the Green New Deal, uh, Representative uh, Cortez understands that Senator Turner is going to be uh, someone that is going to help her in that structure. Because make no mistake, the establishment is coming. Uh, mm, <laughs> they are coming. Yeah. And, and yeah. the one thing that we want progressives to understand and know about this race, this race here in the 11th Congressional District is going to change the dynamic for other races across this country. And, and because we know that and because we are here on the ground and we're watching the surge, we understand that progressives have to come in and, and, and be a voice in a fight in this with us because they are coming. And we understand it we, and we know it. And it's going to take all of us to get her in the seat. Let's talk about the establishment that's fighting against her, because as I focused in on that race that's happening there uh, in Ohio, it seems as though there is a very concerted effort from establishment Democrats to push back against uh, Nina Turner. And, and of course, I think to anyone that would be obvious that that is what they would do. But let's talk about the differences in the two different camps, what Nina is fighting for versus what the establishment is fighting for from your perspective there in Ohio. Right. So this is just my opinion. <clears throat> Nina is fighting for the people and the establishment is fighting to stay in charge. Um, Nina has a love for people, she has a love for community, and she wants to see the things that should come into our communities done the right way. She truly believes in Medicare for All and Fight for 15 versus the establishment, it's about wielding the power. So you have someone who really cares about the people and then you have another group that's worried about yielding the power. There's, mm -hmm. there's a vast difference between the two. And so we're hoping that the voters in the 11th Congressional District see what we see and know what we know, that Senator Turner is the one who is going to continue that fight in this space um, now and, and, and in the future. Mm. Let's talk about Akron. Um, I know where Columbus, Ohio is, and I know the distance from Columbus to Cleveland, um, a lot of family there. Tell us about the politics of Akron as it pertains to progressivism and your fight as a council member. Uh, we have a little ways to go. 
I, I will say that. I will tell you, in 2016, I was the only elected official who endorsed Senator Sanders in uh, Akron. Um, so I was on an island by myself, uh, and uh, it, it was hard. 2020, uh, there was a little shift, and a lot more came along uh, in that fight. So we do have a ways to go, but we have a lot of progressives. We have a lot of African-American uh, elected officials that are in that space. Um, mm. And we know that we have a ways to go, but we are in it for, for the long haul. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Tell us more then about your fight as a council member. And because, you know, you're I, I've seen your work. I've seen your work, particularly on social media. And um, while social media to some may not be real life, it is reflective of the divisions that we see across the country, both between conservatives as well as establishment Democrats. So tell us about your individual fight there in Akron as it pertains to fighting for on behalf of the people. Absolutely. Um, I know that when I wake up in the morning, it's always about doing what's right. Always. I go to sleep at night knowing that I've done well. Um, I will continue to fight uh, uh, for a banning of assault weapons. That has been something that's been a fight for me. And as you've seen across the country, what we are facing yet again, um, I have been a staunch advocate of banning of assault weapons, trigger cranes and bump stops. And I think there's something that has to be done. We can do universal background checks all we want. But until we get the, the guns out of the hands of individuals who should not own them, we mm. will continue to have this conversation time and time again. So that is something that I have continued to fight for. I will continue to fight for us to raise the minimum wage to $15 an hour. And as someone who is a teen mom, I always, always feel the need to fight for our teen parents in that space and making sure that they have a voice in this as well. Let's talk about in that in per, you know, we only have a few minutes here, but as it pertains to presidential politics, um, the broader conversation across the nation, what are the commonalities in Akron as a council member, a uh, person who's fighting on behalf of Nina Turner and her campaign? What are the commonalities that you see in Akron that you see across the country? What are Americans and the American people looking for? Uh, in the words of Senator Turner, people want things that are as good as their promise. They want to know that they have people in that space fighting for them. And this is something that's going on across the country. People want Medicare for all. People want to see a $15 minimum wage. People want that. People want good health care and good jobs. And they want to do something about the crime. And that's something that's going on across the country. Yeah. Uh, Tara Samples, uh, Akron City Councilwoman and political director for the Nina Turner Campaign for Congress. Thank you so much for joining us. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. The pleasure is ours. Welcome back to The Conversation. I'm Benjamin Dixon, host of The Benjamin Dixon Show. And like it or not, you can find it here on YouTube. Joining us now is Eddie Kim. He is a author, a journalist, and he publishes a publication called The Mail. Uh, I was almost ready to make it through that. <laughs> I could I couldn't I was trying to find my 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 notes and it didn't work. Uh um, balancing on the rail. Yeah, you know, <laughs> I was dancing on the edge of a black hole and I fell in articles from the dispatches from the manosphere. That's where I'm trying to go. Dispatches, yep. That's where we're going. One more time, I'm ready to go. <laughs> I All promise. Right. Hey, yeah, no worries, I'll count you in.
Welcome back to The Conversation. I'm Benjamin Dixon, host of The Benjamin Dixon Show right here on YouTube. Joining us now is Eddie Kim. He is the publisher of the newsletter Dispatches from the Manosphere. He's a writer, reporter, and multimedia journalist living in Los Angeles. Eddie, thank you so much for joining us. How are you today? Thank you for having me, Benjamin. I am well. Tell us about your um, your publication, Dispatches from the Manosphere, and all the work that you're doing. So we write about a lot of things over at Mel Magazine, but I've been reporting on right-wing uh extremism, organizing, uh, protest culture, and it's kind of all led up to this year, the launch of my newsletter, Dispatches from the Manosphere, which kind of looks like, um, looks at the Venn diagram between masculinity and violence and sort of online culture. And we've seen so many examples of these things overlapping, whether it's in unfortunate tragedies like mass shootings or just uh, instances like the DC insurrection, which I write mm -hmm. about um, with regard to the arrests that have come afterward and some of the information that's coming to light and also not coming to light. Mm. You also do research into uh, specifically the Proud Boys and the leader of the Proud Boys who turns out to be, or at least one of the leaders of the Proud Boys who turns out to be a federal informant. Tell us about your work in that as it pertains to that. So the media broke, uh, other publications broke the story about how Proud Boys national chairman Enrique Tarrio uh, had a long history of, if not being officially a confidential informant, certainly cooperating heavily with authorities mm -hmm. on a number of cases, including drug deals and uh, sort of fraud cases and things like that. And, you know, the backlash was immediate because, remember, the narrative after D.C. was, hey, the police are not on our side. Right. I mean, the, for the rest of us who are not right-wing fascists, we understood that actually the police had uh, been far underprepared and not defensive enough in a lot of cases. But that aside, the narrative was police are now bad guys for, you know, Proud Boys and their ilk on the right. And so Enrique Tario working with police in the past, that kind of made him persona non grata in a lot of circles. In fact, uh, a number of Proud Boy chapters from Las Vegas to Alabama disbanded and pledged uh, that they are no longer involved with the national chapter because of that uh, example by Tario and some other instabilities that have been happening even leading up to December, uh, excuse me, the DC insurrection. So I, I, I'm, I'm kind of chuckling um, inside because do they actually think that they're on the opposite side of this system when we saw the insurrection or the terrorist event of January 6th? You know, you had forces, you had the, the National Guard that wasn't deployed quickly enough. You had Capitol Police who didn't know whether or not they could pull their guns and they bas basically coddled these people. Do they right. actually think that they are subversive to power? You know, I think people's true beliefs run the gamut. I think some people are using this as an opportunity to like push a narrative that uh, the police are or somehow the enemy. And I think others really do believe it and really just believe in a number of conspiracies around how the uh, the terrorist plot in DC unfolded. So yeah, I, I think there is a mix, but really it's, uh, what's been surprising is more than 300 people have been arrested. Um, because of their participation in the insurrection. And apparently, I've spoken to experts, including Mark Pitcavage, he's a senior researcher with the Anti-Defamation League. And he tells me that, unfortunately, 
we're not getting a ton of new or interesting information about how right-wing organizing happens in this country, even despite those arrests. And the reason for that is because this is a new era where a lot of organizing is decentralized. And mm. so the amount of information that your average uh, a Karen who decided to join a caravan into D.C., uh, that person is taking a plea deal and not giving up that much information. So what the key is, is a lot of law enforcement agencies, including the FBI, have to really look at themselves hard in the mirror and try and understand why did we miss the tips that we got? Why was there not proceeding investigation into an event like this? Why weren't we using more informants uh, or, or setting them up in order to get information on this? Because the tools were there. The tools were there. I, this this actually is blowing me away because you have both simultaneously people who are who are working with um, fed, federal agents, um, federal agencies more specifically, and you have um, ideologies that align perfectly with the military-industrial complex, white supremacy, and capitalism in this country. Yet they feel like they are at odds in so much as that you had white supremacists march up the steps on January sixth, facing off against their brothers, their comrades, like the, their same ideology. And yet, and still there's this confusion around the motivation, the organization around it. What, what have you found as it pertains to how, um, you mentioned earlier, the masculinity, the male grievance, the, those types of things play into this as it pertains to January 6th specifically and the decentralization of these organizations, because some people actually think they went to Washington, D.C. for liberty versus like white male conservative grievance complex. You know, I, I think the first issue of my newsletter gets at this, and it's how Proud Boys stole a Swahili word, Uhuru, for freedom. And now that is one of the most common Proud Boys slogans that, you know, I found in Telegram chats and things like that. So it's interesting because there is this layer of sarcasm and irony. Oh, we're just dudes joking about this. Come in and joke about this stuff that you can't around black people or around, you know, <laughs> queer people. Uh, make those jokes and we'll be a brotherhood for it, right? Because the Proud Boys specifically label themselves as Western chauvinists. So, mm -hmm. you know, it's, mm -hmm. it's this layer of, oh, we're just the brotherhood that wants PC culture to be gone. And then what happens is, this decentralized network puts out the feelers for people who are more than just kidding around. So yes. something like Uhuru, oh, that's funny, that's ironic. You know, I don't mind dressing up in a Fred Perry polo shirt and saying Uhuru in the streets. From that come more extreme thinking and the feelers go out from national and from these chapter leadership to see who's gonna be willing to plan, who's gonna be willing to come to, to an event like the DC insurrection. Who's going to be able to, you know, plan violence against Antifa or whomever they think Antifa is. Mm. Uh, and so that's how there's this trickle up effect. That's how leadership has been formed in these circles. It's people who prove to be more violent and more loyal. And so, you know, the fact that there's also a problem with snitch culture in this almost kind of organized crime type mob mentality space full of men with grievances and violent thoughts, it's not surprising. Um, you know, Brian Hughes, an expert in uh, right-wing extremism at American University, he pointed out, listen, these are guys who are paranoid and violent and looking out for themselves and are getting high off the feeling of that, you know, individualism in a group. Uh, and so when you push them to into a corner and you charge them with the crime, 
they might snitch just because they, they're only looking out for themselves. And that's what got them to that group in the first place. But, but what, what blows me away is that, like, literally, like, they are part of the system. I mean, the Proud Boys, like, of course, their grievance is feigned and it, it is, like, devoid of any substance as it pertains to any actual yeah. uh, oppression that they face. Is there, is, what, what do you view... <laughs> I'm at a loss of words here because they have this rage against the system mentality when they are part and parcel of the system. And, and what you're telling me is that this trickles down and trickles up as it pertains to the individualism that they find. So what is the point? Why are they even out there when the system serves them, but they think that they're fighting against the system? I don't know the answer to that. However, I think that the uprisings we saw for Black Lives Matter, for uh, for uh, immigrants, for minority rights in this country starting, not in 2020, but certainly there was a lot of mass mainstream attention given to it in 2020. You know, I think that made a lot of people who are right-wingers uh, very bitter and wanting something for their own. And that's why you saw Save the Children protests that were mm -hmm. just an amalgam of QAnon conspiracists and Trumpers and right-wingers uh, and I think this is an extension of that, right? Uh, they are learning from both uh, things like Portland police protests and a lot mm. of Antifa action there. They are learning from these decentralized systems, from these protests that are militant. And, uh, you know, for, for better and a lot of worse, um, it's going to be an education for all parties involved, including law enforcement, which really misunderstands a lot of this action. So, you know, it's it's only going to get trickier from here, but I think we really need to understand the etymology of how this spreads and why extremism is, you know, coming basically to the house next door. Um, <laughs> and that is, you know, that's that's literal in a lot of ways. So we only have a couple of moments here left, but what would you say to one of these proud boys who believes that they're uh, participating in a, a decentralized movement for Uhuru, for freedom, yet and still some of their core leadership is not only part and parcel with this system, but also snitching with to this system? I would just say these guys hate being called a Nazi, right? But if you look at history and you look at the parallels of like young German men who were banding together and committing atrocities like Kristallnacht, like if you look at history, the parallels are too close. And if you're not comfortable with that, maybe you need to take a look in the mirror. <laughs> hmm. That's what I would say. Absolutely. Eddie Kim, journalist, writer, reporter, and publisher of Dispatches from the Manosphere. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you, Benjamin. The pleasure is ours.